from Battlefield Studio Alpha. Welcome to the Wartime Leadership Podcast, where we explore what spiritual resilience looks like from different perspectives. We often focus on the physical, emotional, and social areas of resiliency, but too often we neglect the spiritual pillar. This is often because it looks different for everyone. We will be exploring what spiritual resilience looks like in the lives of our guests, who are people from all different walks of life. I'm your host, Nathan Coy, and today's episode is sponsored by Success Draft, where we help you transform your dreams into drafted plans. Head over to successdraft.com to get started on your future today. Today, we welcome Kim with 100 Acts of love.com. Oof, Kim, that just says a lot in the name <laughs> itself. How are you doing today? I am good, Nathan. I'm really excited to be here. You know, leading up to this, just the conversation, the back and forth that you and I were having, uh, you know, you, this is going to be good. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say. It's just going to be good. So now I have started this new thing where I have a random question generator app. Yes, that is the name of it. Random question generator. And we're just going to try this. And it hasn't worked out a few of these la <laughs> latest times, okay. uh, but, uh, but we're going to try it now. I'm going to start a streak of it always working out. Fantastic. Okay. It's your 75th birthday. Where mm -hmm. do you see yourself? Ooh, good question. Okay. This is actually fairly easy. Um, my 75th birthday is going to be celebrated in some mountain place with a big lake. I have a huge house and we're going to have an, an incredible party. Um, I will have a kind of bus that will be running from the airport to the house so people can you know, come down. I will have made friends with my neighbors so that they'll be letting some people stay in the house. And we're just going to have this kind of huge, we're going to start it around, we'll start early at around 12 noon but then the evening we'll roll into the evening with some really good food by some chef that i flew in from someplace um lots of different kinds of food and people are going to be instruments and we're going to sing and we're going to play games and i want my party my 75th party to be a place where people either reconnect with each other mm. or connect and make new friendships new business relationships new friendships that um that really enliven that that brighten their lives Oh, that's so there good. you go. Oh, that's really good. And I like <laughs> I how you I said that, that. You, you have this huge house, but yet you have so many people over. You have to you have to be neighborly with the people next to you. Exactly. And my neighbors, of course, will be coming and they'll be, of course, they'll, you know, they, well, they'll be happy to let people come hey, stay at their place. Hey, I'm having a party, but you can't come. Right. And people stay with you. But people can stay with you. Right, right. People can stay with you. Are you okay with that? <laughs> See, that that I like. All right. Hey, would you lie to keep your best friend out of prison? Probably yes. Mm. Does your best it, friend I, know this? I no. Okay, good. They <laughs> haven't tested it. So, and you know what? I have to say, um, it would really depend um, because I have to think about the immediate ramifications versus the long-term ramifications. And the long-term ramifications might be something that's really affecting my soul, 
right? It might be really heavy and weigh on me. So immediately I'm like, yep, keep, let's keep you out of jail. Let's, but then long-term I'd be like, yeah, you murdered that person and now you're out for free. So I'm not so sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think I, you know, there's of course a lot of caveats, but I'd have to weigh carefully these short-term benefits because some things have great short-term benefits, but really hurt long-term. And some things mm. have were really painful short-term, but are very freeing long-term. And there's that whole idea of double jeopardy where they can't be tried a second time, but you could. I could. Yeah. So yep. there's that. Yeah. That uh, is a good point. What's your point of view when, Ooh, I like this one. What is okay. your point of view about the idea of forever? Ooh. I don't know. Um, it's a good a broad one, question. It is. I don't, we're going to get into this anyway, but I don't believe that we exist someplace else forever. Mm. Um, I also think that we forget that sometimes what we're feeling in the moment is not going to last forever. And sometimes we react from that, those places in fear that this is going to, we're going to feel this way forever. So we need to get out of it as soon as possible. Yeah. So I think those are the two things I'm going to say about forever. That's a really good question. No. Wow. Like I'm sitting here just amazed at how you good could do a, this generator is. You could do a whole podcast on that question. You know what? Maybe I will. Yeah. Maybe I will. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go back to one of my oldies, but a goodie. What is one thing you find repulsive? <laughs> Told you it was a good one. It's so funny. I immediately go to annoying, but repulsive is really strong. Um, I keep thinking like physical things, but there's really nothing I find. You know what I really <laughs> you know what it is? Stepping in dog shit. I'm sorry. Can I can I say that? Can I swear on this one? You're, I'm sorry. You're okay. Fine. Okay. Like I just I, I find it repulsive on so many levels. One, because I've got now dog stuff on the bottom of my shoe. And depending on the shoe you're wearing, you know, all our shoes have grooves now. So now you got to clean out all the grooves. I've got someone else's dog's waist on my and then the inconsideration. Like, dude. If you're going to walk your dog, you got to carry a bag with you and clean it up. Like, you know, it's part of your dog responsibility. So I think that those two things combined are, I find really repulsive. Well, you know what? And think about it this way. Dog waste. I like how you said it that way. Dog waste. Dog waste <laughs> doesn't really stink until you step on it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, and then there's the mental thought of, how much do I have left on my shoe? How much am I tracking in my house right now? Like, you know, like it's just, it, the whole thing is repulsive. How far <laughs> did I go that people thought that it was me? <laughs> you know, I was in on. the grocery store and that's why that guy backed away from me. Right? <laughs> and it was at that moment. Right, right. <laughs> See, I told you folks, this one is going to be an episode you weren't going to want to miss. Oh my For goodness. Sure. I love it. Hey, Kim, yes. you know what? Let's, let's bring it back a little bit. I, I want to know about your background. I, I want to know where you've been, what you what you've gone through in life that that brought you up to this moment. Sure. So I think for your listeners, they need to know that my husband died of cancer at the age of 44. 
We had three kids at the time who were 12, nine, and seven. And yes, uh, I often hear people say, I can't imagine. And you can, and it's worse. Um, I was married for 14 years at that time. I met my husband in a cave. And this is significant because my husband was 6'6". And he had never been asked to crawl into a small space before. Um, He was a teacher at a private school and the private school was kind of doing this outdoor thing to bring their kids together to kind of start a community. And I was one of the instructors who was manning the splunking. And I thought he was really cute. And I said, you should come into the cave with me. At that point, I didn't really register his height because I had just come from a biking trip where I had been leading uh, bikes with students with a guy who was six, seven. So our, his height didn't really phase me. And that was one of the things he loved about me is I didn't mention his height the whole weekend. So I convinced him to come caving and then he came twice. And that is sort of how we launched our relationship. Um, we, he was, I'm very outgoing. He is very reserved. Um, he was wicked book smart. Um, I'm just kind of quick witted. He had an incredible sense of humor. Um, we, um, we were really sort of a yin and yang to each other. And, you know, as in any marriage in the beginning, we were like, oh my God, this is so great and so wonderful. And then in the middle, we were like, mm, <laughs> you know, it would be great if you would only do X, Y, and Z. Um, and in the end, and after his death, I really appreciate how he really was my yin to my yang. And, you know, to, I was his yang to his yang or whatever way you want to say it. And he gave me the safety and security to... Even even after his death, it was something to do what I do now. Um, So my story is my husband, I always like starting with the story. We were sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor was looking at the results on the screen and then looking at some papers and writing notes. And then he finally looked up and he said, okay, here's the treatment plan I want to go with. And he started to long talk about the treatment plan, about the drugs. And then he said, by the way, you're not going to be able to work for probably six to seven months because this regimen is going to knock you out. And then he kept talking and I stopped listening because at that point we didn't have six to seven months worth of savings in our account. And I just went into massive panic. Then a couple of days later, I heard my husband talking on the phone to his boss and something about his tone made me get up from the couch, walk into the study and kind of like, what's wrong? And he had just gotten off the phone as I walked in and he did not look good. I mean, yes, he had cancer or stage four, so he wasn't looking good anyway, Um, but he looked worse. And, And my heart sank. Like I thought, oh my God, he just lost his job. Like we're, we're, you know, we're out of insurance. Like I, my head was spinning. And he said, Tom just said, that they'll cover my salary for the amount of time that I'm in treatment. And we both just stood there, right, blown away. Wow. Um, And it was really at that point that I began to see, you know, one, how companies can help, but also I, we, we started telling people about the cancer and what we found was that some people were really helpful and knew what to do and knew what to say and sort of took action, but many more people didn't know what to do and what to say. And um, there was a lot of shame involved in this because 
I thought that the things that I had said to people prior to my husband having cancer were really helpful. And I discovered that the things I was was saying, what did say to them prior to this experience weren't helpful at all. So um, during this time, it was sort of an unsaid rule. My husband's job was to beat this cancer, to get himself disentangled. And my job was to hold down everything else. And that's exactly what we did. Um, He was cancer-free in six months and seven months. And he slowly started going back to work and we started to rebuild prior to this experience. I always thought that when people were cancer-free, it was like they had this new lease on life and they were really excited and they were doing things. They had bravery and courage to do things that they had never done before. And that was not our experience. Our experience was that there was chemo. um, There was, um, you know, after effects from the chemo that were still affecting him six months down the line Um, uh, cancer brings out the best in your relationship and the worst. So there was this kind of rebuilding and reconnecting with each other. My husband was a pure co-partner, a co-parenting partner. And so I had taken over the reins of that. So it was kind of this wrestling of him getting back those reins. Um, so we spent, you know, a good six, seven months, close to a year rebuilding everything around us before we sort of felt like we were back on stable foundation. Then, um, the cancer came back and it came back uh, about a month after he had had scans that proved that he was clear. So even the cancer doctor was like, it can't be, even those symptoms you're saying, it just can't be, you know, because you just had scans and they were all clear, you know? Um, So it came back, it came back just before Christmas on new year's day. I took him to the hospital because he said he was having trouble breathing and they found a blood clot and then they found these spots all over his lungs, which is where, where the cancer showed up for the first time. And, but they couldn't tell whether those spots were the old cancer, or whether it was new cancer. So they went in and did a biopsy and it was the new cancer. Some of them were the old and some of them were the new. And then four months later, he was dead. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah. that's a lot to take in to, to go from stage four to in remission, yep. no worries to back at it again. What did that, what did that look like on that emotional roller coaster? <laughs> it's a lot of denial, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I think the interesting thing that happened when the cancer came back was it came back at stage four. So I was angry that he didn't call it sooner in his own body. Um, and then there was just, I, I realized now looking back, I was operating in so much fear, like just hundred percent gassed on fear. And, you know, when you're in fear, there's also a lot of denial, but there were these moments of, you know, his birthday was in February and I remember getting a what he needed a new wallet. I remember picking up a wallet and saying and thinking to myself, you know what, just wait, maybe a new wallet isn't a good idea right now. But but forgetting that I had done that, mm. you know, till after he died. Right. So I was in complete. I picked up that wallet, had that thought, put the wallet back down, walked out of the store and then you know, a couple of years later, I was like, oh my God, I had that thought. Cause people say, you must've known. And I didn't, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, I, at some level I probably did, but the idea of being in this world without my husband 
And raising these three children on my own was something that I could not, I could, I couldn't go there. I just couldn't go there. So there was a lot of denial up until the final days. Um, and when those final days came, it was like, okay, there's, there's a song by Sarah McLaughlin, which is hold on, hold on to yourself. This is going to hurt like hell. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I kept a blog during this whole time. And, um, I remember writing that, like, this is going to hurt like hell. Like I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm going to experience. I, I have no idea at all how much this is going to wreck our lives, but I know it's coming. And, and to go from a two-parent home to essentially a single-parent home who, who yeah. you know, you were, even though he's there, you're, you're he, having to take take those reins. And, and like yeah. you said, go from co-parenting, where he was a 100% in co-parent, to yeah. now you're, you're, and then you came back and now you're, you're, you're having to give up those reins of leadership. Right, right. Which, which is actually okay for, which at first I fought, but then I was like, no, because he was the stern one. He was the disciplinary one. So actually under his rule, things worked much better. <laughs> like you know? after his reign. <laughs> after his reign. And so that's why we co-parented so well together because he would be so stern. And then I'd be like, baby, he's five. And he'd be mm. like, oh yeah, he is five. Okay. You know, so we were a good match in that way. Um, and there was a lot more leniency in the house. It was easier for me to be lenient. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really, you know, I, I've been reflecting a lot on that. I've been doing a lot of podcasts and lately y'all have been going deep. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, to look back at that time to see myself in that fear. Sometimes I can still physically fear it. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And I was terrified because I knew it was coming. Mm, it's the the known. Yeah. <laughs> You've it's the known of, it. Yeah, it's 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 the known, it's the unknown, it's the known unknown. Right. I knew something was coming, but I was unaware of what that what that experience was going to be like. And then the second time when it when the cancer came back, it came back as stage four. So it's like you you picked up right where you were before. Yeah. And his body picked up right when they were. I mean, his he lost weight instantly. It was it mean it was unbelievable. In like three weeks, he was back down to the original weight he was when he finished chemo the first time. I mean, he just dropped. His whole body was like, oh, we know what to do with this. Wow. So what yeah. did it what did it look like from a leadership perspective for you? Because you're you're leading your home and now you've got to take the the role of the the dad and mom. That is such a powerful question. Um I I think it was first of all I thought I was temporary. <laughs> I thought I was a temporary leader. Right. Yeah. So I knew I had to do some things, um, but I was sure that the other leader would come back. And so we'd be able to co-lead together. Um, I think where it really changed was actually after he died. And it was really understanding. Wow, this is so. Oh, my gosh, Nathan. So my leadership style is very much kind of like vulnerable railings. And what I mean by that is I think it's really powerful to be honest and open about where you're at. 
Um, and I think you can still ask people to perform right when you're vulnerable and when they're feeling vulnerable. So they may not be able to perform at the level that they usually can, but you can still ask them to do things to the best of their ability. So I don't believe in complete and total empathy where you're like, let them do whatever they want because they're having a hard time. I believe in empathetic, empathetically leading. And I realized that's sort of what I modeled with my kids because I fell apart. I mean, I fell apart. You know, I was pretty useless as a parent for those first six to nine months. Um, And then I was like, okay, I, since I have to do this by myself, where do I need to start? You know, it was sharing. It was like, Hey guys, guess what? Mom cooked dinner tonight. You know, it was sharing those moments of excitement or, you know, mom changed the light bulb on the porch. She got through the spider webs and the moss, you know, mom rocks, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was sharing it's, it's the celebrating. It's the celebrating of the small moments. Exactly. It's like mom, you know, I remember my son, threw up and he was so apologetic because I was not, I was the blood person in the family. Like my husband couldn't handle blood or guts or anything. I was that person. Vomit made me vomit. Like I was, we all were very clear on that. Sympathetic uh, thrower upper. Exactly. Exactly. So the first time my son threw up, he tried to get to the toilet. He couldn't get there. He felt so bad. And I'm like, it's okay, Langston, we got this. And I cleaned up the vomit and I was like, look, I did it. You know? So so it's it being honest about where I was and what I couldn't do and then making an effort to try it and do it and fail and then to do it and try try it again and, and get better at it. So 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 sharing that. So I think that's where my leadership capabilities really shifted um, because I and I had to hit that bottom. Like I had to go to the you know what you guys want to stay up at 10 o'clock on a school night. Go for it. Like, you know, you want to do a sleepover on a school night. You win. You know, I had to get to that point where there, and it was probably very scary for them. Um, I had to get to that point where I had to let it all go. So I could sort of like hit that foundation of, okay, so you got to rebuild how much of your old self are you going to bring in and how much of your husband are you going to bring in? Yeah. And because it's like you said, it's that yin and yang effect where they were so used to the balance that when it wasn't there any longer, it, it kind of threw them off as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, this, they were being thrown off already because he was, you know, he would come to the kitchen table and he really would, he would share a story or two. He loved to tell stories and the kids loved his stories. And then he'd go lie down, you know, and the kids would kind of pop in and out of the bedroom, but he wasn't the stern father that he had been, you know, before, you know, he, he wasn't that guy who was like, no, you need to go to bed right now. And I don't care that you didn't brush your teeth. You had your opportunity to brush your teeth. You didn't brush your teeth. Now you're now using it as an excuse, no excuse. You're going to bed. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the way he parented, um, and very kind and loving. Those kids always knew that they were loved and cared for. Um, but that's the way he parented. And so to, um, to that, they, that was already shifting when he had cancer. You know, I never thought about the reverse. My my leadership, when I deal with a lot of this this type of stuff, I always think about it in the role of the other person that's with me. So like skinning your knees, if we're out on a run and, and they skin their knees, that's right. okay. That's a lesson learned, right? right? If they fall on their face, then, then that, is, that is bad. Right. But I never thought about it on the reverse where it was myself. If I skin my knees, it's okay. It's, it's a lesson. Right. That is powerful in its own right. Now, how did your boys, how did they transition into that? Like, how did they support you in that way? 
I honestly don't know that I can answer that question. I think that, no, I have a girl in the middle. So I have three kids. So I have two boys and a girl. Um, You know, I do remember them. I remember, you know, I I think that what they did was they supported each other. Um, You know, I remember there's a picture I have of at the memorial of my husband and my oldest has got his arms tightly wrapped around my youngest. Um, so it's my oldest son and they're five years apart and he's, you know, he's, he's, my youngest son is sitting in his lap. He's seven. My oldest is 12 and my oldest has his arms tightly wrapped around, you know, my son. Um, I think that they did a really good job of watching out for each other during that time. I don't think that they were as concerned about me, um, or maybe they, they probably were in their, in their brains. Um, you know, I think that's where they started to learn what resilience looks like. Um, because, you know, they, I, I hope that I've taught them, you know, look, that was a bottom and then you saw me come up and then you saw me drop down again a little bit. Then you saw me come back up and you saw me falter back and forth falter, but you always saw me, you know, that, that would have saying fall down seven, get up eight. And you always saw me getting back up. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I hope that they saw that, but really, I think that they spent a lot of time with each other, comforting each other, talking to each other. Um, you know, and there were times where they came in, you know, I would cry, be crying and they would come in and sit by me and hug me, you know, and so that was really sweet and kind. And it was, it was awkward too. Cause I was like, I'm the mom. I'm not supposed to show these kind of emotions. I'm not supposed to fall apart like this. I don't want them to feel pressure. Um, but at the same time, I also learned it's really important that kids learn that they have power to help too. And if you're a parent who's falling apart, letting your children be of service to you can be one of the greatest gifts you can give them because they can see like, I, I do have power. I can make someone feel better. And that's, it's hard because as adults, we don't like that to, we don't want them to feel that way. But I think that's part of what they learned there too. Yeah. I am the protector. I will keep care of you. Yeah. That role reversal can be difficult, but when you empower them, it's like you said, when you empower them and they can see themselves in that role, that's that's a power latch right there. It really is. So you mentioned the resiliency side of it with with your kids and whatnot. How do you define spiritual resilience? You know, we talked about this before, and I thought it was a really powerful question, and I didn't think you'd ask me this early on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, we did not coordinate the timing of this. Um. I define spiritual resiliency as the ability to come back to a belief system that sometimes feels like it fails you. Wow. Um, I have a spiritual practice that I do every day. I meditate every morning. I read a few Bible verses, although I don't consider myself a Christian. Um, I read some Buddhist literature as well. Um, and there are days, and I also, every morning I write 10 things I'm grateful for. Um, and there are mornings I'm like, I'm looking at the blank page because I'm pissed. Something's I'm feel disconnected. I feel left out. I feel like, um, that spiritual stuff is for somebody else. Clearly it's not for me because it's not working right now. Um, usually it's because I have residue from something that happened the day before that I Mm -hmm. haven't expressed and dealt with. So I, I think it's just, 
it's just coming back to it. And there, and this doesn't happen sometimes just one day in a row. Sometimes it's seven or eight or nine days, or I'm going through something really hard and I feel resentful to, with my relationship to my higher power. Um, and it's being able to come back to know that that higher power is still there, even when I don't believe in it, even when I'm pissed at it, even when I think it's full of baloney, it's being able to come back to what I, what I firmly believe in. And even in pieces, like I, I come back sometimes, I mean, seriously, sometimes that writing that 10 list of things I'm grateful for, I'm like, okay, fine. I'm grateful for the pen. I'm grateful that I could afford this notebook. I'm grateful for my mouth guard. You know, like like sometimes. Well, I was going to ask you when you when you feel like that and you're looking at the page, do you do you ever leave it blank or do no. you force yourself? I force myself to mm. find things that I'm grateful for. And like I said, sometimes it's like, okay, I'm grateful that I was able to get up and go pee. I'm grateful that my bathroom is 10 steps away, you know, 15 steps away from my bedroom. Um, I'm grateful that I green out my window. Like sometimes it's really like, I'm, I'm grateful that I look younger than I think I am. You know, like I'm sometimes I'm scratching at the surf, like digging hard. I'm grateful for the sheets that I have. I'm grateful that I had a hot flash last night because it means I'm alive. Right. So sometimes, <laughs> you know, I was about to say, you know, it's the small things that we forget about. Exactly. It's the small things you that know? really add up that that maybe there are days when we need to reflect on the small things in order to be grateful for the bigger right. things when they're right. there. Yeah. I have rarely put in my journal, like I'm grateful for my life because that's just, it feels, doesn't feel, it feels so general and it feels so big. There are moments where I'm like, oh my God, I'm so grateful for my life. But usually it's smaller things. Like I'm just, I'm really grateful that this is a practice that I have. Um, I'm grateful on I'm on number nine, you know, of the 10 things. <laughs> exactly. Win in my book. Exactly. exactly. Or sometimes I'm like, wow, I'm grateful I got I wrote to 15 today because I felt needed to do that. So I think the more specific you are with, with your gratitude. You know, it's not that general, like, yeah, yeah, I'm grateful I took another breath. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, if you can get really specific about it, I think it's really powerful. And there are days when that has been really, that's been challenging for me because I felt so disconnected from, from my spiritual source. And and that's understandable, right? When, yeah. when you take that moment to actually write those down. Now, I, I kind of do something a little bit different. I write a few things. I never, I don't put a number on it right. for, for wins. Yes. That's great. Yeah. That's a really another powerful one. It's a, it's a, it's a gratitude practice. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. and, and that's really what, what, what I think matters the most. And with what you've gone through and how you've experienced spiritual resiliency in your own life, how do you continue to build it into your life? I know that you said that you read, you, you do these other things. Is there mm -hmm. anything else that you do? Yeah. I mean, you know, it all depends on the day. There are times I'm on my knees before a meeting, <laughs> you know, but I think the main thing actually, you know, so this actually goes right into the work that I do um, because I am so grateful for the way that people showed up for us. Um, I am so grateful that I got to see that I got beyond the resentment and I got to see the fear and the discomfort for those who didn't know how to show up for us that I wanted. And I'm grateful that I felt so driven 
to do something for them. And actually really for me, because I was that same person before my husband got sick. So that's what really pushed me to first write the book. I wrote a book called 100 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer or Loss. Guys, it's not just a girlfriend's guide. It's a guy's guide. Um, and I wrote it. It's, you know, the, the, I because if one in three of us is going to get cancer, the other two need to know how to be helpful. Mm. And I saw, you know, this took a couple of years, but I saw their discomfort and their pain and their feeling really bad that they didn't know what to do and feeling like, how come feeling like everyone else knew what to do, which wasn't true at all. But, you know, when you when you don't know what to do, all you see are people who do know what to do. Right. So you just you focus on that. Um, so that, you know, I, I really became so grateful for the support we had because we really did. We had communities supporting us. We had no idea of the kind of communities we were part of until my husband got sick. And we had zigzagged. We had lived at all different parts of the country. And those communities came together and reached out and said, we love you and we care about you. And the book is titled 100 Acts of Love. And my website is 100 Acts of Love. My business is 100 Acts of Love because every single time someone showed up with something, it was like they were saying that they loved us. You know, here's a massage, here's a massage gift card. We love you. Here's another lasagna. Although I will say, don't bring people lasagna because everyone else does it. And after the first month of getting lasagna after my husband died, my kids were like, no more lasagna, mom. We're done. Like, no, we're not eating any more lasagna because everyone made lasagna differently. And it was always a surprise. And sometimes they loved it and sometimes they didn't. And they were, they were just over lasagna because it was the one meal everyone bought. Um, so, so there's this, there's this, um, there's this, you know, I, I wanted people to know how to show up for people because it meant so much to me. I mean, it is the foundation of who I am today. I mean, it's, it's the, that rock bottom was, you know, that was, there wasn't really a rock bottom. It was a foundation of people supporting us and telling us every single day, how much we mattered to them, how, you know, how much my husband mattered to them by giving us these little things. And that's how I was able to build the, like the, the new house of Kim was yeah, on that and, foundation. And in that you also talk about uh, some of the questions that were asked of you and in the ones that were kind of uncomfortable for even you to sit there and try to answer. What were some of those questions that were asked of you during that time? So uh, a lot of people mean well, but one of the things people say, so there's two things I want everyone to know. Please don't say, if you need anything, let me know. And it sounds so helpful. And in the moment you really do any, mean anything, if someone said, I need a piece of cheese from the moon, you'd be trying to get in touch with NASA to figure out how you can get a piece of cheese from the moon, right? But then you'd walk away an hour later and go, ah, uh, yeah, not that piece of cheese. Like, I can't do that one. Um, so it's unhelpful for, for four very specific reasons. One is when we are going through something difficult, most people just want to be seen in that journey. They just want someone to go, holy hell, this sucks. And that's it. They want to be honored. They want, you know, think about when you come home from work, you had a bad day and you call your mom, your sibling, your parent, your spouse, your partner, whoever it is, you talk to your dog. You Sometimes talking to dogs is really great because they seem to be paying attention. And Absolutely. so it feels really good, right? So that's what people want. People want to be seen in their pain. The second reason it's not helpful is what is anything, right? It's a big 
word. And I had a toddler. Did anything mean that you were going to take your brand new detailed BMW and go to pick up my vomiting toddler at preschool? Or did anything mean that you'd be happy to drop off a bottle of wine? Right? Anything is too big a word. The third reason it's not helpful is you're asking someone who is major league, like not in their head. They are not dealing with 52 cards in a deck. They may look good. Maybe they look good, but they don't have 52 cards in the deck. So you're asking them to take apart their day and to find the one thing that you might be able to do. And the fourth reason it's not helpful because you're asking them to ask you for help. And I don't know about y'all, but most of us are not good at asking for help. And even in your, when you're in a crisis and you know you need help, it's so hard to ask. And I just can't imagine that I'm going to ask you to do something that you may not even want to do and to hear you go, oh, um, okay, like that hesitancy, like, heck no, I am extremely vulnerable. This is the most vulnerable part of my life. I'm not going to take that risk. So that's why it's not a great phrase to use. I always say, be specific. Like we all have our helping superpowers. Mine is going to the grocery store. Do not ask me to bring you a meal. Even talking about bringing someone a meal, like makes me get anxious. Like I'm like, do they want string beans? Do they want them fried? Do they want, like I have an air fryer. Can you air fry string beans? I don't know. What goes to string beans? Cranberry? I don't know. Cranberry sauce? I don't know. That seems to. Like, how how big of a lasagna do I need exactly, to take? Exactly. Let me pull start, one out of the refrigerator ex- from the last time. Exactly. I start to panic. But if you need something from the grocery store that's not in the grocery store, I'm going to talk to that store manager. I'm going to find out when it's ordered and I'm going to be there to meet that truck. That's my helping superpower, right? We all have helping superpowers. So tap into whatever yours is and, and offer it. The book I have is, is, don't, is, um, is um, transcribed. What's the word I'm looking for when you give a book to someone, you say, this is for so-and-so dedicated. Thank you. Good grief. Um, (laughs) I'm even lost. I'm like, oh crud. I know what she's talking about too. Right. So the book is dedicated to a gentleman named Kinney who works at the Venice farmer's market. And the reason I dedicated it to him, because when he heard my husband had cancer, when I shared the news with him, he said, well, if you need anything heavy moved, let me know. And I thought it was an odd offer because I was like, all right, thanks. But guess whose offer I always remembered. And guess who I called when we had a grand piano that I decided I wanted to rearrange the living room and I needed this moved? I called Kinney. So the more specific you are with the offer and the more you you offer more than once, the more likely the person is to call you when they need that one thing, right? Um, So that's a phrase I always say, don't say. Another one, and then we're going to stop because I could go on this topic. We could do a whole podcast on this. Another one is, how are you? And people say it like that and they want to touch your upper arm. You know, they touch your shoulder, upper arm, they, they care. And they just go, how are you? And <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I'm looking at her face when she says this. Too. Like it's, I'm seeing her going, that's me. We all have done it. Here's the thing. Y'all take that stick, hit yourself with it once and then throw it away because you didn't know any better. Like there's not a class in high school that we're all supposed to take that teaches us this. It's supposed to be something we learn from osmosis, but no one knows what to do. Um, And so when you say, how are you? 
you are basically, it's kind of an invasive question. You're saying, tell me everything that's going on with your life, your poor thing. I feel so sympathetic for you. Please tell me so then I can go tell someone else. And what they can't, what your audience can't see is I've got my hand resting in my chin, resting in my hand, being like, ooh, do tell, right? It's kind of a nosy question because you want the blood and guts of the story. And the person may or may not feel like telling you the blood and guts of the story. A better question, such a simple twist. How are you right now? Or how are you today? Right? That's very different. And the tone is very different when you're asking. It implies that you really do care. You don't want the blood and guts of the story, but you're really asking for how are you at this moment? It implies that you get it, that you Mm. get the journey. You may not have lost your husband or child, but just by asking that statement, you get that this is a difficult journey and that where you where that person is right this very minute, they may be okay. They may be on the, they may burst out crying when you ask that question. And your only job at that point is to stand there and be this open vessel for them to, to them to dump into. And That's there, there's a level of care within that, yes. right? Don't ask a question you don't care to know the answer to. Exactly. Or you only want the, like, you only want the good juicy bits too. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I want to go back and visit something that you said. You said that your husband's work gave him however long he was going to be gone for, paid him his salary during that time. So it sounds like he had an office environment that wanted to come behind him in that way. Yes. So this, thank you, Nathan, because this is the lead into what I do now. I'm an HR person. And I went back into HR. I'd been stay at home for uh, 12 years. I went back into HR after my husband died. And my very first job was working for a president, was HR to a president of a company whose wife had cancer and then died. Oh, wow. And I watched, I kind of thought, I, this is the naivete. I thought, well, companies know what to do when someone, this happens to someone, they know what to say. They know to give this person room to grieve. They know that he's going to be cranky and pissy probably for up to six months. They know he's not going to be able to perform at the level that he once was. They know it may take up to a year. Like everyone knows this and they didn't. And so I started to kind of step in very clumsily. Like people are like, we need to bring a plate of deli meats. And I was like, no to the deli meats. No, 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 no. There's one, per- he's one and he's got a son. And every all those neighbors are bringing all the deli meats. We do not need to bring deli meats. But when he lost his temper much, much quicker than he used to, I had to step in and go, hey, that's the grief talking. And here's how you can manage it, right? When the CEO of the company said, your job is to kind of keep him under wraps. I was like, hey, you know, you can help him with with this by maybe taking talking to him about what's on his plate right now and removing a few things right like so so companies i was so surprised that companies didn't know what to do and of course this happened over and over again as i continued in my hr career i found organizations again and again and again that didn't know how to talk to an employee who's dealing with cancer that, you know, one manager was trying to help and removed all of the projects that this employee loved doing and left them with the projects that were kind of nothing. And what that lesson taught that employee was one, obviously I feel like I'm not important that they don't trust that I can get the work done, but it taught everyone else. If you're sick, don't tell anybody because they're going to take the things that matter the most to you away from you. 
right? So it sowed a tiny little bit of distrust, tiny, tiny little bit of distrust in the manager, but that tiny little bit of distrust grows over time. So um, I set out to fix that. And what I do now is I have a five-step process that I run organizations through um, that talks to them about, you know, hey, here's what to say. Here is what to feel, because a lot of times we talked a little bit earlier, we, we come from a place of a lot of feelings. And if we don't get those feelings out of our system, they leak out of us, right? Think about the bad day that you have and you come home and you take it out on the dog or the kids or the partner, right? You just, all of a sudden you're snippy and you're mean. And then you realize, oh, it's because I had a bad day. Then you feel really guilty because it came out on people, on innocent bystanders. And that exact same thing happens when we have cancer or illness or grief in the workforce. We have our own ideas of what, how we would behave or how we have behaved in the past. And we put those ideas and judgments on this person. And if they don't match what we think, we get resentful or angry and we get mad. And all of a sudden the work that they're doing isn't enough or, you know, or isn't, you know, or they're doing too much and they should be home and that you don't think they should be at work. The other thing was, yeah, we have a lot of stereotypes, right? When we say cancer, we all automatically, thanks to TV and TikTok and Instagram, we all see bald people who lose their eyebrows, lose a lot of weight. Well, there are over 200 kinds of cancer. And they are treated completely differently. And there has been a rise of the use of immunotherapy, which means that some people don't lose their hair and they don't lose weight or some people gain weight. So it's, you know, we have our own stereotypes of what it means to have cancer that I ask managers to really examine. Because if you have the stereotype of someone who's going to, the manager who took the projects away, thought that the person was going to lose their hair, get, you know, become bald, become weak and frail and wouldn't be able to do the work. And turns out they were on a chemo where they didn't lose their hair. Right. Mm. So, so, you know, having to examine those things. So we talk about that. Uh, then we go into assessing a lot of managers. People want to run in like deli meats. Let's bring them deli meats. Well, let's assess the situation before we bring deli meats. And that means looking at everything. So, you know, how much has the employee told, how many people has the employee told? Are you the only person or did they already tell the whole team? Have they been in touch with HR? Is HR leading this drive? Or if, if they're salespeople, are they talking to their, they're talking to their customers or vendors? You know, like what is the, or what is my skill as a manager enabled? Have I dealt with this before? If I have, what was my reaction? If I haven't, what are my fears around this? As an organization, how do we as an organization do this? It turns out, we weren't as special as we thought we were because, because the, 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 the school, it was a school that my husband worked at. They had done this for someone else who had a brain tumor. I think it was like three years before my husband got sick. So this was sort of the way that they operate. This is what they did. And I do want to say that they did. I mean, they were very gracious, but we also turned, they paid half his salary because we turned over our state disability checks to them. So, you know, wow, so, but okay. it was, but it was a fair, you know, it was a, it was an incredible deal. Um, you know, so, so there is one story. I love this story. There was a gentleman in the organization who my husband and him did not get along very well. They were respectful, but they didn't particularly like each other. And when my husband got sick, there had been a mistake that had been made that he was an HMO and we had signed up for PPO. And this gentleman went all the way to the president of the insurance company and said, you need to change this and fix it. 
he fought all the way to the top. And that was sort of his mitzvah to my husband. It was the one thing he knew he could do that he could get changed. And so that's exactly what he did. And because of that, I fully 100% believe between him and the doctor we were able to go to because we were on a PPO, he gave my kids an extra two years to know their father because the treatment plan that we were originally on would not have worked with the aggressive cancer that he had had. My husband would have died at the age of 41. And I am absolutely positive of that. And my kids would have been four, seven, and nine instead of seven, nine, and 12. And those memories, those like he gave that gift to us. So there's so many things that organizations can do, but I, I get a little ahead of myself. So there's assessing and really understanding this is where the HR team calls up the broker of the benefits and says, what does our, what does our organ, what does the insurance company we have, the medical insurance company offer for cancer patients? Dig. I don't want to hear about, oh, we do this coverage. Dig and find out, is there a cancer care advocate? Do they have cancer nurses? Like go in there and dig. So you do the assessment. And then the fourth step is that's where you come into the thoughtful action. And the thoughtful action is, is, is the guy who went all the way up to the president of the you know, insurance company and got him to change it to a PPO. Um, the thoughtful action is coming up with a work plan with the employee who's about to enter chemo. And it's probably going to be, they know it's going to be pretty rough and say, okay, here's all the projects you have on your plate. You want to work. We want you here working. When is treatment? What do you think? This, how long do you think the side effects are going to last? And let's look at what can you do? What can you contribute within these projects? I'm not going to pull your favorite one, but what can you contribute to your favorite one, right? That's the work plan. The communication, thoughtful action is the communication plan. Maybe the employee hasn't told their team, but needs to tell the team, right? Maybe, it, maybe it's a manager who has cancer and the team needs to know. How are you going to communicate that? Who the team's first, first worry is going to be the manager. Then the second worry is going to be, oh my God, what about my job? Right? So how do you answer those questions before they're even asked? What's your communication plan? What's the company's plan to support people moving forward? 46% of those who are diagnosed with cancer are between the ages of 25 and 64. Those are prime working years. Right. If you haven't dealt with a person who has cancer in your workforce, it's really just a matter of time. And so what's your organizational well-being plan? Right. Because we talk about well-being as you bring in yoga and, you know, exercise and financial well-being. But well-being can be simple acts that you take every day as a manager to take care of your team. And this is this is what this is all about. Well-being is how you manage your team through a crisis like this. If the person has lost their significant other or a child, you have the same conversation with them about a work plan. Like, you know, you check in with them. What's your check-in plan with them? How much support do they want personally? Do they want people showing up at their doorstep with meals? Or do they want, you know, um, a, a, share, um, a share ride gift card? Because they just, driving to work right now is probably one of their biggest challenges at this moment. Right. So it's just kind of really taking those thoughtful actions as an organization, asking good questions and being able to take thoughtful actions. You're not going to be able to do everything, but there are there's there's the team that needs to be taken care of, the manager that needs to be taken care of, the employee that needs to be taken care of and the company that needs to be taken care of because everything we do affects revenue. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And then the fifth one is that constant check-in and putting them into practice. So it's really understanding as an organization, you know, this is what we did for, this is what we do for people who have cancer. This is what we do consistently across the board for people who have cancer. Um, Sometimes cancers come back, like in my husband's case, right? So what do we as an organization do when this happens again? Um, it's really being able to, it's having the manager revisit. It's having the manager take some of the things that he or she has put into place in during the crisis and saying, you know, what? I'm going to hold on to these. So we do these on a day, on a regular basis, no crisis needed. It's preparing for the next crisis. You know, I, I really like how you don't limit it to cancer. You don't, you don't, limit it to just the one side, but rather that it's very broad, it's very, very open. And it's just, let's be, let, it's taking care of people. It's asking yes. the right questions to, yep. to not be afraid to ask those questions. And, and I like it. I mean, it's, it's not simple no. by any stretch of the imagination no. because every person is different. Have you taken the time to get to know your employee to right. know them? Yep. Yep. So when something happens, Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing about what I teach. It's really just kind of management 101 Mm. um, in a crisis. Yeah. Right. It's, it's understanding, you know, knowing what to say and how to relate to somebody else. It's understanding your own emotions in any given moment. You know, is this really about them or I'm just pissed off because last time this happened, this employee did X, Y, and Z. And I'm remembering, you know, that I used to do that. Right. I'm kind of really mad at myself. Right. It's, it's, it's really taking, it's understanding a situation. You don't make a strategic plan without doing an assessment of what you have in place right now. You don't, you don't decide you're going to launch this project without understanding what you need to make the project work. It's then taking the action to do the project. And then it's reflecting. Right. And what works. And, and it, and it works. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it really does. You just have to care. I tell my people, I, I can't teach you how to care, but I can show you. Yes. And a lot of that's going to come from showing them step by yes. step, but these types of things I didn't think about, like the communication tree, how do I take and devise a communication tree around this to ask the right person, the right questions. If X happens, then this, yep. I don't think you have to plan for everybody. Like you don't have to be like, okay, right. Pull out plan 462. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's this cancer where they're going to be out Thursdays and Fridays and they're on this project. We've got a plan for that. Yeah, we, we got one. Don't you worry. Uh, but, but it's this mission, this mission that you have been thrust into. Let's be honest. Like you were thrust into it, right? I'm going to, I'm going to say no. Okay. I'm going to say I do this because I want people to know how powerful they are in other people's lives. Mm, okay. There wasn't, I, I mean, I guess in a way I was thrust because I kept thinking about this. Like this was an obsession from, I think it was probably the third month I started writing. Like even my blog posts, I go back and I was like, oh, look, I was giving people hints right here. (laughs) So, so maybe I was, I was thrust into it spiritually. Like I couldn't let this go. I, I wrote this book and I sat on it and I was waiting for Oprah to discover me and she didn't. 
So I, you know. <laughs> hey, well, you know, she has a house here in Charleston. So if you ever back visit, I, you know, I'll just kind of try to I'll leave her a trail of books. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was like, okay, so that's not going to happen. So I have to do something. And I, I fought it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was embarrassed. I didn't think I had a voice. I mean, it took me, I mean, this book was written in 2015 and it's not seven years later and I am full on in this, like mm-hmm. in it, but it took me that time to really accept that this is, this is what I need to be doing. And I do it because I, I see so many people so bereft that they don't know what to do and they don't know how to help. And it just, it kills me because I just want to say here, like, just be yourself, show up as yourself. And that's the best thing you can do for that Mm. person. Like, and they need you. Like, don't think of yourself so small that you're not needed. You are exactly the right person to deliver to them the exact right thing. You're the only person who can deliver it to them in the way that they needed to hear it from you. Yeah. And so that's my passion. So I would not say thrust, but thank well, you for I, that. I would say passion. Then. There you go. You're new. You, you, you're passionate about it because you were affected by it and you want to be able to help others through the transition time yes. for them. So the book is 100 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer or Loss. And it's not just a girlfriend's book. I I, I caught that when you said it before. (laughs) So I am really interested in this. So I will be purchasing this to to get it in myself, especially after having the the conversation with you, because, you know, this is something that I have dealt with at work as well on a personal level with with a good friend of mine who went through cancer. and and what she experienced and and was you know being told to her so yes. so this is going to be this is a personal thing for me as well and why i'm getting this but the thing that i mean i'm so grateful kim they, that you took this time to come here to to talk about this Aww. because it is your passion and i think yeah. it should be everyone's mission to act this out yeah everyone's i just want people to know that you're important you know, I think we spend so much time thinking that we don't matter, that we're not good enough, and that I'll be good enough once I get this and do that and lose the 10 pounds and have my hair look like this and get, but you're not like your friends love you for exactly who you are. And showing up who you are is the most important thing that you can do for anyone who is dealing with a crisis. And talking about helping individuals through stuff, I know that personal development is another side that you also enjoy. And I saw you grab a book earlier. So what book recommendation do you have for listeners? Well, I have a confession. I grabbed my book. (laughs) And that is perfectly okay. But 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 actually, one of the books that I've just recently reread that I am in love with is something called The Four Agreements by Miguel Ruiz. And in it, he talks about four sort of agreements we make without thinking about we're making them and how we need to not make them. And one of them that I love is don't take it personally. And we all further on, I'm not going to take it personally, but man, what a jerk, you know? And what I constantly learn and relearn and learn at a deeper level is one of the things he said in there is if someone comes up and shoots you in the head, you can't take, it's not personal. And I was like, hell no, that's where you're wrong, mister. Like Mr. Ruiz, I could be writing you a letter because you are wrong. (laughs) But if someone comes up and shoots you in the head, it's about where they're at, where they're at. Mm. And the reason I love that so much is because sometimes people aren't accepting of help. They just aren't. 
and you can try all these different ways and you can show up and you can really, really want to open your heart and love them. And they can be like slamming the door in your face and giving you the finger. And, Mm, but it's not you. It is about their own history that, that lets them slam the door in the face and give you the finger. And the best thing you can do, if it's about when you can remember that it's not personal, is just to kind of, you're showing up, gave them a little bit of love and you don't know what that little bit of love can do. Right. You don't know. They may open up to someone else that they have never opened. Maybe they're going to call their sister and say, hey, I really need help because you stood on their doorstep and say, hey, I really want to help you. And they're like, no, no, go away. I don't need your help. I'm I'm an American. Darn it. I'm strong. I don't need I'm independent. I don't need anyone's help. (laughs) And then they turn around and they're terrified and they're lonely and they call. They're not going to call you, but they call someone else. So I always I love that one. And it's something I really try hard to live by um, and not I'm not always successful, but um, so I love that book because there's, there's this four agreements in there um, that are very, that are, that are very dear to me. Um, And it's a book I reread, you know, it's a short and it's easy read too, by the way. It's not one of those ones that's like thick and you have to read it. It's a really short, cute little short, easy read, but powerful. So that's the book that I, that I recommend right right now. The four agreements, the four agreements. Kim, any final words? Thank you. Nathan, this has been so great. And I love, I, I seriously, like this has been the best. You've asked the best questions. Um, I really love what you do and I'm so appreciative of it. And you have one more subscriber. <laughs> I'm going to smash that like button and leave it. Hey, y'all, if you really do like what he said, if you like what I said, seriously, leave a comment, leave a review because it does help these podcasts get known. And he did not pay me to say that. Um, so yeah, I, I so appreciate your questions and it, and it's true. You're very much, you represent very much what I represent, which is this kind and loving with railings, right? There's just this, there's a really neat intersection between being compassionate and focused and productive. And, um, I think that's exactly what we need to be doing more of, um, in, you know, in, in management and in leadership. So I adore this. I adore you. Thank you. Well, that's my thank final words. <laughs> thank you, Kim, so much. Hey, the book and the website, 100actsoflove.com, or the book, 100 Acts of Love. Buy it today. That's how I got her to say what she said. Just going <laughs> to say it right there. How about that? <laughs> Hey, today's episode is only possible thanks to my friend and producer G Frazier with 369sounddesign.com. Jeff, you have to make me sound good every week. And we all know that is a very hard job to be able to pull off. So you are truly the one with the hardest job. And I am so blessed by you. We are blessed by the entire team here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. See you next time. Be blessed.